0: This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest in Mr. Gil Baumgarten. How you doing Gil? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Gil is a financial advisor, an author. You got a bunch of cool names, a disruptive wealth manager, an ETF thought leader. You've been in the business for 38 years. First 15 years in Morgan Stanley, and then 11 years with UBS. So about what, 26 total years in the wirehouse space. And then went independent right after that. So you've been independent the rest of the way. Give us a little history of yourself in the business. When'd you get started? Kind of your, uh, your path. I'm an
1: overall EF Hutton guy. That would be the starting of my career and then ended up at Smith Barney through those mergers and left and moved to Payne Weber because I wanted to be at a smaller firm and they instantly got bought out by UBS. So I stayed there for almost 11 years and... All the while, I was doing more discretionary type business and broker discretion wrap, if you will, on the PMP platform. I figured that made the business more compatible to be exported to a more of a fiduciary space. And so that's the business model that I followed until it ended up with me starting my own firm in 2010.
0: Excellent. The financial crisis was pretty much over. It was in recovery. And then you said, let me jump ship.
1: It was partly that. It was also partly that I had a partner who retired and he was not well health-wise and I had been sort of managing his business for a period of time and I told him that I was leaving at the time that he chose to retire and if he wanted to come back, I could leave his clients behind and not invite them or with his blessing, I would invite those that the business was compatible with. And I ended up taking almost all of my two hundred million in assets and about half of his two hundred million. Some of his clients weren't compatible with a discretionary sort of a philosophy, since he had been sort of a stockbroker to them, if you will. Yeah. so that three hundred million is how I started the business. Have I don't have any partners. It's just my book of business, which is almost one point four billion today. Uh, so we've had some pretty good growth over the years, and it's a much more profitable business. The payouts are. I don't know, 40 to 50% higher than they would be if I was still in the UBS model. So, my my income is up about 8x since I left. So,
0: excellent. Yeah, I was looking at your staff. It looks like that was one of my questions was are you the only advisor because it looks like there's like seven people on staff and what I do like about it is is it seems like each one has their own set of processes or goals for your firm, and then you handle the money management. Is that accurate? That's
1: that's right. Yeah, I've got a CFA portfolio manager who works for me. So he and I are the investment committee and I'm the only client facing advisor. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is in a support role. So they each have their lane. So I have an operations manager. I have a CFO and director of compliance. I have a trader who is also an analyst and does some data work for me. I have full-time PR and event staff. Uh, So when I rolled the book out in May of 21, she was getting me on various podcasts and radio shows and the like to kind of help me promote the book. Then I have a full-time business development guy who is a scratch golfer and was on the 2009 NCAA championship golf team. So he networks in the golfing community and then directs referral business into us. And uh, so that's kind of what the staff looks like. I have a staff CPA who sort of is my family office manager, if you will, and does some background work for some of our biggest clients, pulling in statements from Goldman or wherever, and then providing aggregated reporting. And so that's pretty much what the team looks like, but it's really just me as the only advisor.
0: And now you've been in the business 38 years. I've been in the business for 20 years and I am already having clients ask me questions of, what is what does it look like if you're not around? What does that look like? What does that look like if Gil's not around? Have you started to think about succession planning? I mean, personally, I've we actually hired somebody last week and we're hiring another advisor to come in and kind of handle the next gen clients just because for two reasons. One, I don't necessarily relate as well with the next gen clients and I'm guessing you as well (laughs) As, as, as we get up there. And then two, succession planning purpose wise. I just want to make sure I'm adapting other advisors. What has been your thoughts regarding succession planning?
1: that, That is such a good question. And at 63, the problem is much more pressing for me than it is for you. So I clearly understand the importance of it, and it. And when I was turned sixty, is when it really started to come up more frequently about what happens to me if something happens to you. That question does get answered more. More does get asked more frequently, and I really haven't come up with a good solution. I'm in the process of recruiting. I did recruit a guy ten years ago who just had a difficult time with it, and it just wasn't a good fit for him. And I do see a lot of advisors who are not good business development guys, and they want to come in and hopefully get on easy street and pick up the scraps, if you will, of the relationships that I may not want, that not necessarily that I would have on my books, but they would be in a spot to get a million-dollar client because we don't take those as new clients. So yeah, that lack of business development skills was really the problem point as for them and for me as well anybody who's going to inherit my business or be in a position to buy equity from me over time has to be a business development guy the investment side of it is really a commodity as far as i'm concerned yeah you can make a big story about it but that's just not reality beta is what beta is and the market's going to do what it's going to do and uh, so that being the case whatever you're product selection to go along with it, that's fine. It doesn't really matter much to the clients, but business development, that's the guy who can, or gal who can make or break the business. And so those are the skills that I think will ultimately reside with the owner of the business is the rainmaker. For sure, for sure. And it's- Hardest to train for and hardest to hire for.
0: It is, it is. It's really hard to hire. It's really hard in the concept of finding a younger advisor who- has a passion for the business, is a fiduciary, can build businesses and grow, and then is okay having a back seat for a little while with the concept of what they're developing long term. Yeah. And I can tell you, I've been looking for three years and finally found. I think that's two people that I think are going to be able to do it. So it's a question of what works or doesn't.
1: Well, congratulations, because that's not easy to do.
0: No, and you never know. Hopefully, that person, you know, like you said, got Sometimes you got to go on a bunch of dates before you get married, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about when i was reading up on you the ubs situation now my guess is that at some point you were probably more transactional and then you got into more fee-based planning as time went on most people in 1988 were not necessarily fee-based advisors at that point and then as ubs created and you pushed for this etf model talk about the fight for that talk about what that beta testing was like, and then talk about how it wasn't far enough, and then that's what caused you to start your own RIA.
1: Well, so I pretty much determined years ago that since the backdrop of the marketplace is universally applying to everybody who has market exposure to some degree or another, there's relatively little difference between the mutual funds that you might pick and the ETFs that I might pick. It's kind of rounding error, if you will. Uh, I decided to fire all my money managers back in probably 99 to 2003 or so. And that met with some resistance from the firm because I was doing the broker discretion wrap thing. And they could see that since I didn't have a partner that was integrated into my way of doing it, that they were threatened by the fact that I could build up this big discretionary book and then leave the firm and start my own. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, Along the way... I was doing some tactical allocation mutual fund business in the Pace product at Smith Barney. Excuse me. See, Track was the product at Smith Barney and Pace was the product at BS, which are tactical mutual fund allocation programs that are risk decided in some type of a formula. And I just decided that ETFs were a way better vehicle for that. First of all, I could run ETFs on a discretionary basis where neither the track or the pace program were technically discretionary. Okay. And lack of discretion is ultimately what kills a brokerage. And so an advisor can only talk to so many clients per day. And if you're running that on a non-discretionary basis, there's only so many clients that you can serve. And I found that at about a million five of production back 15 years ago and probably a 100 to 125 clients, that's about all you can service. You get pretty well tapped out. And that's the key. Discretion is the key to scale as far as I'm concerned. And the ability to run one decision that applies to 200 clients and you don't have to call them and you're just relying on the results, that's where the growth could happen. And last year I did essentially $7 million worth of gross production production in fees i would have never been able to run that scale of a business on a ubs platform not the way i was running it anyway and i know that ubs and other firms have huge producers i'm not quite sure how they do that and talking to clients maybe they only have billionaires as clients i don't know how they do it but i was not capable of doing it
0: i would think just in the not to cut you off but i would think in the last five to seven years that the UMA discretionary platforms, they've gotten better at the ability to allow an advisor discretion to a limit, but not give them full discretion in how they allocate it. And I think that's been the transgression of how to keep the bigger advisors somewhat happy and scalable. But at the same time, the lack of the ability to do whatever they think is in the best interest of the client is also relegated.
1: Yeah, and I also found problems on the fixed income side too, where you would find a bond that traded at 98. You're show they're showing it to me at 101 with $10 in it. I know that the firm is making three times the revenue that they're showing me as gross, and then they're going to take half of that $10 back, and they're going to make $25, and I'm going to make $5. And not being able to allow me to trade away uh, creates other issues. And my mindset is from 13 years ago, remember, also. I'm sure the business has changed a lot since then, and all the things that drove me out of the brokerage business, many of them might have gotten fixed. So you might have a lot of listeners out there that are offended by the fact that I don't have some of my facts straight. Hey, this is facts from the way I experienced it some time ago. It may not be the way the business operates today, but I can guarantee you one thing, it doesn't operate like my business operates. There is no way that a non-fiduciary business can operate like a fiduciary. I did talk to a broker a friend of a friend who was telling him that my business was growing by leaps and bounds and that this guy should talk to me. And that guy had the nerve or maybe the lack of perspective to tell me on the phone that there was no difference between his fiduciary and my fiduciary. And I was like, he just did not understand the business if he was saying that, or he was lying to himself. But anyhow, it's definitely a different side of the coin over here in the fiduciary side.
0: Well, for, for sure, for sure. And I think having independence and the full discretion ability to do whatever you think is in the best interest of your client, no matter what is an important step. Um, you were at the time using mostly ETF models. Are you still using only ETF models? Or are you picking and choosing your own equities and your own fixed income?
1: Well, I write about ETFs a lot, and that gets me a lot of PR and attention with regard to sort of rattling everybody's chains about the difference between ETFs and mutual funds. ETFs are really only 20% of our $1.4 billion dollars. Uh, our most popular strategy by far is a rising dividend tax efficient. And we choose individual securities where we are, uh, it's a closet indexed product, just like most money managers who are running closet index product. They don't want to admit that they want to talk about all their alpha generation and this and that, and then it fails to materialize. We all know the story. Yep. So i we weight the securities by industry selection based on the way the S&P is weighted. If the S&P is 16% technology, well, so are we. So and you, we just you
0: choose... stick with the same exact sector, or do you give yourself a 3% margin of error or 5% margin yeah, 3% of error?
1: 3 to, to 5% margin of error. In 2014, we went to zero energy, and we held our zero energy position. We had a refiner, so we had Valero during that time period. But then we went to a not only a full energy weight, but an energy double weight, when energy went to zero in March of 2020. So towards the middle of 2020 and end of 2020, we were carrying a very large energy weight that contributed to last year. So in 2021, our rising dividend, which is GIPS compliant, by the way, was up 31 and the S and P was up 28 and a half or something for 2021. And in 2022, you would think that beta would have turned around and bid us. But the market was down 18 and three. quarters. No, you had energy. Yeah, Yeah. we were down 11 and a quarter. Yeah. And so we were very fortunate to catch an up market and a down market and have alpha in both years. So that's our most popular strategy. It's super low turnover. Uh, we don't charge a sub advisor fee. So clients pay us one wealth management fee and we give the asset management business away. So at 56 basis points as an average fee, you can see how cost competitive. Oh,
0: you you said you give that away. You're giving, you're using an SMA or manager to to manage that?
1: No, we are the SMA manager, but we're providing asset management services for which we don't charge a separate fee.
0: Got it, got it. So it's mixed firm, into your management fee. Yeah, the
1: firm is set up as a wealth management firm with asset management services tucked into it that clients benefit from without having to pay a sub manager for that.
0: Yeah, which is normal and well, I would say is if the fiduciary way to do it. How about that? I won't say normal. Uh, yeah,
1: but many, many wealth managers would buy mutual funds or do SMAs, and still provide that service and then let the clients pay a separate fee for that correct we don't we
0: don't do that correct yeah no what your practice is I would say mirrors mine except for the ETFs I don't have pretty much my five uh, percent for low yeah. asset size of clients but yeah no it's funny uh, a transgression but some of that and again it, it, no fault to anybody's own but as you grow in the business and you start doing no fee-based practice then you do wrap mutual fund programs and then wrap ETF uh, portfolios and then eventually you know graduate into doing individual equities which at the end of the day is more transparent to the client. They see what they own. It's a lot more coachable specifically when times are more volatile and you have ability to get a little bit more.
1: Max alpha.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. The debt for sure. And the ability to to tax harvest for clients is uh is an added benefit inside of your management fee. So hundred yeah. percent. Your growth is substantial. You said you do have a business development officer that kind of goes out there and gets that. Does he eventually wanna be an advisor? And this is kind of the, the role he's in for now, or does he just enjoy doing the business development aspect?
1: He does ultimately want to be an advisor. He's enrolled in the CWPA or certified P C P W A mm-hmm. certified private wealth advisor program. And he does have a degree in finance. And so, yes, he does have the skills to kind of go that direction over time, but we need enough assets under our wing for him to be able to make a separate living from that. So that's what we're, that's what we're working on
0: so talk to the advisors right now that are at the wirehouse that are you said you were 62 is that what you said 62, 63? I'm,
1: I'm 63 right now I was 50 when I started the firm
0: 50 yeah talk to the 50 year old uses that are out there right now they've been in the wirehouse for 15 20 years they have a really successful business they don't see a reason to leave and I've heard this story multiple times and I, though I disagree with the whole concept that you have to be entrepreneurial to to start your own business I really think you just need to be entrepreneurial in the beginning, and then maybe spend a couple hours a week on the entrepreneurial skill set. The rest could be sitting with your clients, and you've proven that with 1.2 million under ma- billion under management that you don't have multitude of advisors. So tell them the ease. Tell them why they should make the move.
1: Oh my gosh! I'll just make it real simple. First of all, the monkey that sits on my back in the brokerage world, being FINRA, is so much more problematic. Than the monkey on my back of the SEC, I can't even begin the, the total time that it takes me to run a firm of nine employees with more than a billion dollars of assets was less time than I spent dealing with FINRA issues when I only had a $200 million book of business embedded inside of my UBS practice and far less frustrating because the SEC is totally rational about the way it makes rules and FINRA is super arbitrary about suddenly deciding that if you talk to 10 people about the same thing, you have to file some kind of report about the fact that you talk to more than 10 people about the same topic. That kind of stuff just drove me batty. Okay, so that's issue number one. Issue number two is let's talk about margin. My payout peaked at about 42% at UBS. My margins were over 50% in my first year. I did a million four of production my last year at UBS. I think I made 660. I made 600 my first year of doing this. I made a million my second year. I made 2 million in my fourth year. I made 3 million in my seventh year. And I made over $4 million last year in take-home pay. So my margins are crowding 70% as net profit margins as opposed to the 42 that I would top out at. When I go out and open up a $25 million account that's going to pay $150,000 a year in fees, that $150 drops right into my bottom line because I don't have expenses associated with that. Whereas I would have never been able to get more than 42% of it in the way I was operating my business on the UBS platform. So, margin on incremental dollars is huge. And that's the reason why the brokerage. Business puts a lot of pressure on their advisors to go out and grow the business because that's where the firm makes all their money. It's margin for the firm, it's not margin for the broker. That's issue number two. Issue number three is residual value. The these types of businesses trade for seven and a half times revenue. Try retiring from UBS or Merrill Lynch and getting seven and a half times gross paid to you up front, which is what these businesses trade for. So there is a huge appetite. Go out and put seven and a half times on my $7 million worth of production and see what kind of number you come up with and try to retire from UBS and get the same kind of package. So those are the things that people need to be paying attention to.
0: When you left, you did something unusual, and that is you created your own RIA, and especially like today, that wouldn't be as unusual as because they're popping up left and right all over the place. But back in in 2010, that was a very rare thing. Did you look at going to the independent space and being duly registered as an independent first? What caused you to say, hey, I want to go and create my own RIA, and did you have help creating that?
1: Uh, Yes, I did. I went with a firm that was sort of an extraction firm and hired them to get me out of the business. But I decided that what it was that frustrated me most, barring the pay issues, was simply the compliance from FINRA. Which I had had just such a bitter taste in my mouth about all the hoops that they were trying to make me jump through that made no sense for me or the client whatsoever, and made tons of sense for the broker dealers of the world. I just got tired of playing their game, and I knew that if I had a single dollar of revenue that came from the brokerage side of the business, I would be forced into FINRA standards, which were totally idiotic as far as I was concerned. And I knew that I had to make a clean break from the business. Now I did spend some time negotiating with myself over my 12B1 fees because I had, while a small mutual fund producer and a very small annuity producer, I had maybe $150,000 worth of trailing revenue from 12B1 streams, which looks like free money. And I really didn't want to give it up given the fact that i didn't really know what the business would look like when i started it from scratch and had expenses and no revenue but i decided that i had enough confidence that i'd be able to convert that business to something fee generating as opposed to commissionable if you know given enough time and that's exactly what happened Within about a year and a half, I had pretty much gotten all the 12B1 business converted to fee base. so I put them in lower-fee products and then had a fee on it so that there was no way the client was going to come out behind, and then, of course, I had 70% profit margins, on the incremental revenue, where I only had 41% profit margins under the UBS system. So the math on it was much better for me, but it did pose a time constraint with how much time is it gonna take me to convert these. In the end, it worked out to be so much better. And clients were so much more committed to me. I had a lot of conversations with clients who said when I left, hey, you did, I never told you this, but I got this $2 million over in this Fidelity account. I never told you about it because you were my broker. And if you're gonna be running all my money, let me give you all my money. And so that's where a lot of flows came from. I also had six relationships bigger than 15 million when I was at UBS. Now my top 65 households average 15 million. So that's where the real stunning part of the number, a billion dollars worth of incremental assets have come from all those new big relationships.
0: Now you got clients, right? You got some clients that are in managed accounts with you at UBS, but they happen to have an annuity that they inherited or they had for a longer period of time. You now create the owner RIA. What happens to the annuity that they can't move? What do you do with those assets
1: in those cases where the. Say they had a guaranteed minimum withdrawal benefit that has Mm -hmm. accrued to greater than the current market value, and you can't really justify them leaving it behind and giving up the GMWB, I would put those on my platform and in many cases not even charge the client a fee, or I would park that at some friendly broker-dealer and let him have the trail commission that you know the client is going to pay no matter what you do, and then wait it out until the current market value exceeds the GMWB, and then you can swap it, which I am facing that now you can swap it for a cheaper product and then put it on some type of a fee I have a couple of clients that we charge 50 basis points, and then I have them in a product that only has a very small fixed annual dollar fee and a couple of basis points when they were paying 175 or 200 basis points for that, and their all-in costs are now under half of that. And then, of course, most of that is fee that falls into my fixed versus variable pay grid, if you will. It's much more economic for the client and more economic for me, too.
0: So even though it's an annuity, it technically is not monitored through FINRA because you're charging the management fee. So it's considered SEC compliant, but not- Yeah, I,
1: I, you know, for the other brokers out there that don't understand this business model, and there's a lot of them, you can give advice to anybody. Any Anybody can give advice to anybody else. They just can't get paid for it unless they have one of two registrations. They can be FINRA registered in which they have to work for a broker dealer and the broker dealer sets all of the rules of the way you're going to get paid and the way you have to behave. Or you can be registered with the SEC and you cannot work for a broker dealer or get paid in any under the table manner, spread, commission, 12B1, any kickbacks, any of the shenanigans that go on behind the scenes in the BD world just cannot apply in the RIA world. And so as long as I'm charging the client a fee to give them advice on their annuity and i've taken steps to minimize the commission activity that they're paying to third parties for which i'm not getting compensated then i've met my fiduciary duty to minimize costs and to charge them a fee for the advice that i'm giving them separately from any hidden fee that could be embedded in the cost of that annuity
0: if they are, as a hypothetical, let's just say they bought a Jackson annuity in 2000 and their income benefit basis and death benefit basis significantly higher than their current value, and there's never going to be a way, you can't be registered through Jackson to be able to look at their annuity and advise them on that as the agent of record, correct? You would have to outsource that to an advisor, and then you can get the statement and obviously review it with them and help them make recommendation changes. That's exactly right. Okay. That's right. Yep. Yeah, so I, that's the only piece I've always missed. I, I'm at this stage of my practice, I'm, I'm 100% fee-based, but I do get some annuity trails for clients that are stuck in these products. And the question always is that the for the people that say, I'm only a fiduciary, if I'm not getting those, I always second guess that because I'm always like, well, I'm getting those, but I'm still a fiduciary to the client, I'm just not charging them a management fee. So I guess the conceptually for you, you can still see it, you just can't have control of it. Yes.
1: However, there was a lawsuit that happened against FINRA back maybe 90 days or so ago in which FINRA was claiming that any 12B1 should be illegal and anybody who's receiving a 12B1 has to be registered as a broker. And there was a fiduciary advisor who was receiving 12B1 fees off of an annuity and could justify that there was no other mathematical disadvantage to the client and was not charging the client a secondary fee. And as a matter of fact, the fee he would have charged is higher than the client's fee with a 12B1 based on the unique characteristics in this client's circumstance. And he apparently won the lawsuit against FINRA, which was claiming that he had breached his fiduciary duty because he was receiving a 12B1. And I I would agree with that. As long as the client comes out ahead, I don't care how you get there. And so I don't understand all the nuances of that. I just know that I have chosen not to receive any 12B1s because I don't want to fight that battle.
0: No, it makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, What would be your advice to advisors out there that are not getting over the hump? They're working hard, they're busting their butt, but for whatever reason, they just they're missing something. What is something in practice management or some piece of advice you would give to advisors out there that just are not able to take that second step and are missing what?
1: A lot of times it's the showing up at work and trying to figure out how you're going to make a living today as opposed to thinking long-term about what you can do to make a client's life better without directly getting compensated for it. So whenever clients ask me, should I get a mortgage or should I pay off my house, I will always lean, especially if they're a bondholder, I will always lean towards having them pay their house off because they're essentially just buying their own bond back. And what I am explaining to the client is how they can save the fees that they would otherwise pay me because I would otherwise have the bonds in-house. They're going to earn a return. I'm going to charge them a fee. And that total return is probably not going to be as high as if they had paid off the mortgage to begin with.
0: Well, you've been 100% correct, except for maybe the last like three or four. Four months, right? That's right. <laughs> but
1: you you yeah. can see the wheels turning in their head yep. when they realize that I've just given them advice that is only beneficial to them yep. and is harmful to me. And many people try to dance around the topic, whatever it happens to be, in a in presenting a set of circumstances that benefits the advisor at the expense of the client. And the client may not be able to exactly figure it out, but they can figure out that they weren't being given good advice. They may not be able to pin down what it was and that was just said, that was not advantageous for them, but they're going to be able to tell that it's advantageous for the broker. And I think many people do not want to do anything or give any advice that harms them in the process. And they end up giving biased advice to the client, thinking that they're doing the best thing, given their limited choices of what they have to do to make a living. And I think that's a huge mistake because clients are smart enough to figure that out. And one of the things that you can really do to help your business is to put yourself in the client corner and make sure that they understand that you will fight all incoming wounded with regard to how you're going to protect their assets and become an advocate for the client as opposed to an advocate for yourself.
0: It's funny you you said that, and it's a phenomenal piece of advice that by showing that you are taking money out of their portfolio that you get paid on for the net benefit of them, it's actually something that every advisor should consider looking at right away because it is a great way to show the client that you're in it for them and not for you. So
1: right. you'll make it up in scale over the long haul. I promise
0: you'll make it up in trust, referral scale, everything else. Last question for you. I love this question. It's kind of a question that every advisor has a different take on, which is referrals. Some people are in the camp that you should be asking for referrals consistently from your clients. And some people are in the camp that referrals are earned, not asked for. And if you're doing the right thing by the client, you're probably going to end up getting a lot more referrals by not asking. Where are you in that camp?
1: Uh, I no longer ask for referrals. There was a time period where I subscribed to that theory, and I probably did get a few incremental referrals out of it. People will say, well, you're not going to get a referral that you don't ask for. I don't buy that. I think that everything that you do every day, every word that you utter, every service that you give to the client, everything that you do to let the client know that you're in it for them to win it and not in it for you to win it, makes you more referable and that it should be a natural byproduct of the relationship. They should view it as that they are doing their friend a favor, by sending them to you, as opposed to them doing you a favor by sending them to you. And when you ask for referrals, I think you're putting yourself in the position where the client or whoever it is that you're asking is going to think they're doing you a favor, where they really should be thinking they should be doing the referring person a favor, the referral a favor. So we don't ask for referrals anymore and we get our fair share of them.
0: I agree with your take 100%. Hey, Gil, if any advisor out there wants to get in touch with you and you might want to get in touch with them, how can they reach you?
1: My firm is called Segment Wealth Management. You can find me at segmentwm.com. You can find my blog. We have, I write a free blog. You can sign up there. We won't ever contact you. We're not looking for anything except just getting our information out there. I write on business development topics all the time, have written for Financial Advisor and other publications. You can sign up for that, segmentwm.com. I also wrote a book called Foolish. Investors get worked up and worked over by the system. You can buy that on Amazon. So those would be the best places to reach
0: me. Fantastic. And you're also on LinkedIn too, correct? I am. Yep. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. For the advisors out there, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gil.